With a new administration comes new initiatives, and the Biden administration is wasting no time in attempting to reform the current international tax system. On today's episode of The Fiona Show Transfer Pricing, we're examining the Made in America tax plan and how certain elements could impact MEs across the globe. We're joined today by Cross Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song, as well as Economist and Director of International Tax here at Cross Border, Michael DeSimone, with over 45 years of experience in international tax. Welcome, everyone. I'm Matthew DeMello, your host. And did you know you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast? Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words throughout the course of today's show. Send all three to the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Again, that's the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Now, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. I scream, you scream, we all scream. For transfer pricing, Tetra Pak, a Danish producer and seller of ice cream production plants, lost its legal battle over estimated taxable income for fiscal year 2005 to 2009. Here's the scoop, pun intended. Tetra Pak Processing Systems, AS, conducted intragroup transactions with Tetra Pak Group's sales companies, a move that the Danish tax authority did not deem arm's length. The authority performed a discretionary estimated assessment based on the company's inadequate transfer pricing documentation and sustained losses. Their findings were the tax equivalent of a brain freeze, increasing Tetra's income by approximately 57.5 million U.S. dollars. Tetra Pak fought back all the way to the Danish Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled that the transfer pricing documentation was, in fact, insufficient and lacked a comparability analysis, eek which justified the tax bump. The Danish tax authorities have been making headway on landmark rulings, Microsoft, ADECO, and now Tetra Pak. A little advice to MNEs, keep your documentation up to date or risk a legal match that's less vanilla and more rocky road. Spain is throwing taxpayers a lifeline. The Spanish tax authority's latest guidance outlines how to determine a value range for an arm's length price. Pulling from the OECD's transfer pricing guidelines in the EU's Joint Transfer Pricing Forum, the guidance covers areas like testing the value of controlled transactions, when to employ statistical tools, and ways to handle ranges with a wide dispersion. It also recommends regular assessment of comparability to confirm that the range is still applicable. With multinational scrutiny on the up and up in Spain, taxpayers will be happy for a little hand-holding. Your phone and wardrobe are constantly seeing updates. Turns out transfer pricing isn't far behind. The UN released the latest version of its transfer pricing manual for developing countries, which replaces the 2017 edition. So what are the new nuggets of content? will save you from flipping through 600-plus pages. The updates to the manual cover intra-group financial transactions, country practices, and centralized procurement functions. It also helps with navigating profit splits and resolving comparability issues. The UN wants to help provide as much clarity as possible to developing countries, and updated guidance is a step in the right direction. (music) 
Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Welcome back, everyone. We're on the line right now with cross-border chief economist Mimi Song and director of international tax Michael DeSimone. And I'm actually going to hand things off to Mimi to start this conversation. Mimi, you have the floor. Absolutely. Michael, welcome to this podcast. We're really excited to have you. Maybe we can give everyone a real quick introduction to yourself. Do you mind? No, not at all. I've actually been in tax 45 years now. First 25 were actually on the client side. And for 23 of the 25 years, I had the fun job of going into the order room each day and dealing with the IRS and anybody else that showed up from anywhere in the world that showed up from. <laughs> last half of the career has been on the consulting side here at Cross Border Solutions, where we work with our clients to hopefully help them prepare information in a way that doesn't give rise to some of the more, shall we say, interesting questions we encountered in the first half. Awesome. And what is one of the hardest things that you've had to deal with during this pandemic? Well, I think the biggest challenge that everybody's faced during the pandemic is the loss of face-to-face -face conversations with people. Because quite frankly, a lot of times, that's really where you start building a rapport with people. And you can do that over the web to a certain extent, but it's also difficult to do that because you just don't have that same kind of in-person feeling with it. The other side of the coin also is that the camaraderie that's built up among the crew, among the people that you're working with, it's a little bit difficult when everybody's just staring at a screen and trying to pretend that they're talking to somebody in person. <laughs> so the remote environment is, is not your favorite necessarily, but it's, it's been working out okay, I feel like, right? Oh, without a doubt. It's kind yeah. of thing that you can take advantage of it and make sure that you work it to your benefit on there. You can maintain a certain amount of personal contact with it and personal context by making sure you're using video, things like that. And really, it does kind of approximate the in-person experience. But quite candidly, if you're conducting a lot of business over the internet like that, sometimes you tend to fall into bad habits because you tend to not realize that the person over there may not be hearing exactly the way you're saying something and taking it that way. It's you know, a little bit of a communication issue at times. Right, right. Yep. Well, hopefully technology will continue to improve on that front. But I think the most exciting thing is the fact that you've been in international tax for 45 years, over 45 years, really. So over these numerous years of your experience, what are some of the most significant changes in tax? And I know we're going to talk about 
Biden's tax plan today, but, but before this, right, what are some of the most significant changes that you've seen and experienced? Well, I think the biggest changes really have been over the last decade. When you started with the BEPS initiative and how that's all been working out, how different countries have adapted to that, how they've been changing the rules and what they're looking at. And I think even going back further than that, the Guardian newspaper had really done a series of articles back in 04, 05, where they were talking about earnings stripping and things like that and migration of IP offshore. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really where a lot of this stuff started with calling attention to it in that fashion. Today, everybody is now concerned with base erosion and profit shifting. The Guardian was addressing it before that was a big thing with anybody that they had noticed. And I think that's probably the most significant difference today is because of the internet, because of the way people are getting information about it, that they've become just more aware of it, more sensitized to the issue. And to satisfy my own curiosity, Mike, how did you get into tax? I mean, is that something you grew up and thought, hey, I want to be a tax professional? Actually, I don't think anybody ever thinks about <laughs> they're going to grow up and be a tax professional. I was in a general accounting initially, okay. but then at that point, and this is going back to the mid-70s, I was looking around and said, you know, general accounting is nice, but it looks like the tax guys are more interesting. And so I started hanging around with a few of the tax people, and I just kind of caught the bug. And it was one of those things where everything kind of worked in my favor to get over to the tax spot. And it just became an evolution since then. Amazing. And then, you know, we, we all know that transfer pricing is one aspect of tax. And you've been in the transfer pricing space for, for quite some time as well, specifically. So what is a transfer pricing mistake that you see multinationals make over and over again? Actually, I think the biggest mistake is really two mistakes. Number one, they don't actually update their policies and procedures on a regular enough basis mm. to keep track of what actually people are doing. The second is really goes hand in glove with the first, and that is they don't update their agreements. And a lot of times people don't even realize they have dropped dead dates in the agreements instead of them being evergreen, where they automatically renew after a period of time. Yes. That's the biggest issue. Yes, I've seen that time and time again, the agreement side of things where it's such a mess, right? <laughs> and you're oh, yeah. like, which one supersedes the other? And wait, there's no active agreement right now. What's going on? <laughs> Actually, knowing that you don't even know what's in your agreement. You don't know what you're not following. Right. And that's really the problem. That gets a little bit scary. All right. So today we're here to talk about Biden's Made in America tax plan. What issues does this tax plan aim to tackle or tell us give us a little bit of background here well actually it's tackling a lot of different issues mm -hmm. as a practical matter one of the biggest concerns that everybody has is the idea that we're outsourcing america to everyone else in the world and that really is one of the biggest issues facing corporations generally and the public generally the other side of the coin with that also is that there's a number of countries out there that are kind of actively engaged in a race to the bottom. That is, everybody's trying to lower tax rates, corporate tax rates, to make themselves appealing. The problem that you have is that when you start doing that kind of race to the bottom, everybody loses. Because then you're starting to really just trade in, well, how much of a deficit am I willing to take? How much of a hit am I willing to take? And that's the problem. Same thing also, we have a lot of companies that are headquartering in certain countries 
where they're trying to take advantage of treaty networks, things like that, then becomes a question of how competitive somebody can be or not be. And then it brings up another issue because of the way they're now doing business, especially over the internet. Where are you actually doing business? How are things going to be addressed? How are things going to be divided? How is fair tax going to be established? And that really dovetails between what we're doing and what the OECD is coming up with pillar one and pillar two on that. Right. Because again, sourcing is really the issue and the big question. What's the nexus? I think the Biden tax plan really has got a couple of salient points that have to be taken into consideration. Everybody's obviously looking at the point of view of taking the tax rate from 21% up to 28%. But the other attributes of it also are strengthening the concept of a global minimum tax for U.S. multinationals. Same thing also, trying to reduce incentives for foreign jurisdictions to really maintain low corporate rates. That's going to be a really difficult issue to face because really you're now trying to influence others to your point of view and your law. The other issue is also the minimum 15% tax on book income of large corporations that haven't paid their quote-unquote fair share on that. That's going to be problematic for a lot of companies because of the differences between gap accounting and tax and what their rules are. Same thing also in terms of maintaining excess funds over there, the idea of federal tax deferral. That's going to be raising a lot of issues with corporations in terms of what they do, how they do it. Same thing also in terms of looking at what you're doing with R&D and how you're incentivizing R&D and trying to make sure that it's really done here and exploited here. As a practical matter, that's really one of the big issues on what you're doing, how you're doing it, and most importantly, where you're going to be doing it. Yes. And interestingly enough, you know, when Biden took administration and he appointed Janet Yellen as Secretary of Treasury, that's when all of a sudden the U.S. started getting on board with the OECD's Pillar 1 initiatives. Oh, exactly. That's one of those issues where, as a practical matter, we have been resistant to that because the idea that we're going to be subjecting companies to taxation in foreign jurisdictions goes against what we were trying to do in the first place, and that is bringing people back over here and having economic activity over here. And so it's a contradiction. Just interrupting very quickly for our first CPE code word. That code word is made, as in made, in America. Again, our first CPE code word for today's episode is made, as in made in America. And back to our conversation. Let's just provide a little bit of education here, right? Because pillar one means nothing to our listeners. Pillar one, though, in its simplest form, I'll say it, is this concept of a global minimum tax, right? True. And so what are some of these foreseeable problems that could actually arise from this concept of having a global minimum tax? Well, that's just it. The question of having a global minimum tax really suggests the other part of it. How do you determine what was earned where and who's getting the right to tax that? And that really goes to a question of, well, what are the activities that you're going to find within that? Years ago, literally seven decades ago, we faced the same issue when we were talking about nexus on the state income tax level, because the question then came down to what activities really give rise to having nexus with the state. And even the idea of just solicitation, the idea of a salesperson going into a company and saying, hey, do you want to buy something? 
As crazy as it sounds, there's actually three different basic definitions of solicitation in the U.S. system, with the most common being, hey, do you want to buy? With the second being, well, you can straighten some stuff up and then ask somebody if they want to buy. The third, where you could straighten some stuff up, ask them if they want to buy, and then actually put it on a shelf for them. And the reason why I'm using that example, this is where it came from. The detail men and women doing tobacco, beauty care products, chewing gum, things like that, where people would walk into grocery stores and do those kinds of activities on there. But that's really just the starting point of all the issues that you face in terms of that nexus. Because today with the internet, you don't actually need somebody to walk into a store and straighten up the shelf. The shelf is electronic. It's always well stocked. The question then comes down to what of that activity really constitutes being in person, face-to-face with the consumer, and how is the consumer interacting with it? And is that enough to say that, yeah, you should be taxable here? Think of when you order something over the internet. That's really the activity. You know, that's a great point, and I think that's really where we're talking about the complexity here, that concept of nexus and all of a sudden having to break the mindset of the fact that nexus is created from having a physical presence or a brick-and-mortar store because that's not the case anymore. That's very true. Point of fact, that's one of the things that you looked for before. What connection did a company have to the state? And typically, you would always look at it and say, well, they have a retail store or they have a salesman in the state who's got a car that he's using and he's got samples. So it was always a question of, is there a person there so that there's payroll associated with it? Is there sales activity associated with it? And is there physical items that they're utilizing, like inventory, like the car they're driving around in to solicit that? With the internet, it's just electrons. And nobody knows where an electron lives. <laughs> so how does Biden's plan stand to impact or, or coincide with the OECD's Pillar 2 proposal, which is really the, the GLOBE proposal, right? Global anti-base erosion. Right. That's actually where it's going to be kind of interesting because as a practical matter, when you're looking at that, that really comes down to, well, what system is going to be put in place and is it going to agree with what we already have in place? Currently under guilty, we have a few issues with that to begin with so that we're bringing back some income under guilty that would have otherwise, quote unquote, escaped taxation in the U.S. Under pillar two, that's also going to be addressed and there's a little bit of conflict inherent in there. And there's an even larger issue with Pillar 2, because quite frankly, when you're getting down to it, this is really trying to look at a global apportionment scheme of some sort. And the problem that you have is that everybody in the world would have to adopt a common platform. Now, going back to the states as an example, we have 50 states, 45 of which have an income tax or a franchise tax measured by income of some sort. And yet, with just 45 jurisdictions, We can't get them to agree on a common definition of how to apportion things. When you complicate it with companies and really being subjected to one of three different regimes for consolidation, either a consolidated return, a combined return, or a unitary return, and the various permutations that you can have depending on Mm -hmm. your structure, that's complicated enough with just 45 states. There's over 200 countries in the world that have to reach an agreement as to how to do this. We've had 70 years of practice plus on that. We still don't have agreement. 200 countries. I'm not sure I like the odds on that. (laughs) And how would this proposed plan, right, stand to impact transfer pricing? 
Well, actually, that's going to be a very interesting question because, quite frankly, transfer pricing really seeks to do one thing more than anything else, and that's establish everything on a true arm's length basis on that. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're doing that, you're always looking at it from the point of view of, okay, wait a minute, what are the activities that are occurring in there? What types of risks are being assumed? What kinds of assets are being employed? And how would you arrive at this really as if it were working between two independent parties on that? Here, we're going to get into a little bit different type of situation because under the schema that we're looking at, it's really not worrying about an arm's length nature to it. Because quite frankly, apportionment isn't really concerned about looking at a specific transaction. If I'm trying to sell you a box of pens, whether I make or lose money on that is really not a question that's settled by apportionment. Because if I'm losing money on the pens, but I'm making a ton of money on paper, well, the net number is what's going to be sliced up in apportionment. So really, whether I've got an arm's length nature on the pens or the paper doesn't really enter into it because I'm not looking at the real details of what the economic activity is. I'm just looking at the gross result and saying, hey, listen, whether you're making or losing money in my jurisdiction, I just want a slice of the profit pie. I don't care where it was earned and how it was earned or who earned it for that matter. I just want my piece of it. You bring up a really good point here because when we think about this concept of profit attribution, it starts with the baseline assumption that there's profit, right? Does this include or encompass losses? Well, that's the other issue because as a practical matter, there will be instances where companies will have losses for very simple reasons. Right. Look at COVID-19. The world fell apart. Companies that were looking at profitability disappeared. How many hotels do you know are really looking at making a profit right now? Very few. Right. If any. That's right. And, you know, I think that's going to be a significant challenge when we think about this concept of the pillar two proposal and the apportionment of, quote, profit. Does that also encompass losses and how do losses impact that attribution, right? But it also goes back to the very significant point of is a profit attribution tying in properly to where value is created? I think you you had brought that point up a second ago to say, well, does it really reflect the facts and circumstances of that particular business transaction? Exactly. And that's really the issue because you can have transactions that are like lost leaders. So as a practical matter, you may have something that you're doing because you have to do it because your clients need it and rely on you for it. But the other side of the coin is there may be other activities tied to that that really are part of the same agreement with the client but are not related to that lost leader in there. Now, depending on how you view it and how many different parts of it you have, that's going to be impacted. And that's really the question. How do you actually look at what's going on? How do you evaluate a company that may be just starting out? And because they're just starting out, it's going to incur losses on there for no other reason that, well, it's the first time in the country. They have organization expenses. They have to do things in terms of, you know, setting up whatever as opposed to somebody that's established. That's really one of the big issues that everybody faces in a different context, regardless of what's going on. Because things really do exist and they're not existing in a vacuum. You can't look at it and say, hey, listen, if you have a store on Fifth Avenue, the shopping place of the world in New York City, that is guaranteed to make money. No, 
if you have a new store that you just opened up on Fifth Avenue and you're paying market rate rents, you've got a tough time trying to make a buck. But if you happen to have gotten a lease back in the 50s and it was a 100-year lease or 99 with an option for 99 more, well, you could be in very good shape and not have to sell as much to be making a profit because your expenses, your expense structure is lower on there. And these are the types of things where it's going to be challenging for new entities coming into a market or any type of new organizations doing anything to really try and fit into a mold on that. And a lot of these proposals really don't take into consideration true market forces that are occurring. In true economic terms, there are people that are trying their best to make a profit right now. But just because of circumstances, such as the COVID pandemic, they're not going to be able to. And they're struggling to try and keep things afloat on there. It's kind of interesting because the OECD and the IMF have actually taken kind of opposite views over COVID. IMF is looking at it from the point of view that we should hold companies accountable and not give them any slack on that. The OECD has actually loosened it up a bit and may realize the idea is that, hey, wait a minute, as much as we want to collect tax today, we need to preserve businesses for tomorrow. Because guess what? We're still going to have budget requirements to fill tomorrow and people are still going to need jobs tomorrow. So we can't push people into bankruptcy over being overly stringent at the moment. Right. And Rich. I got to say, it's weird. It's one of the rare times in my life I actually agree with the OECD. <laughs> Which is also when we take a U.S. view and we look at the Biden administration's plan here, the made in America concept follows in line with that to take a little bit of a unilateral approach here, right? to trying to level the tax playing field, if you will. But interestingly enough, just to make sure that everyone is on the same page here, in the proposal in and of itself, Biden is proposing to increase the corporate tax rate from 21% up to 28%, as opposed to pushing down corporate tax rates, right? But this doesn't necessarily de-incentivize, if you will, profit-shifting actions then to shore up that difference perhaps is the implication here of a global minimum tax saying you are going to have to pay taxes on this regardless of where you're shifting your profit, so to speak, because you're ultimately subject to a global minimum tax. We don't know what that's going to be, but there's no incentive for you to move it outside of the U.S., right? But that means also getting the cooperation of everybody else. And that's yes. the rub always. When you have that many players on the field, it's tough to get everybody moving in the same direction on that. Right. You know, it's interesting also. Everybody always complains about tax rates really killing development, economic activity, things like that. And yet, we've been promised multiple times by certain administrations that tax cuts will pay for themselves, that they're going to create all this economic activity, and it's fallen flat on its face. If you actually look at GDP over the last 70 years, 80 years, GDP has not risen with corporate tax cuts. In point of fact, some of the best years that we've ever had happened when we had some of the higher tax rates. If you go back to the 50s and 60s, the corporate rates were astronomical compared to what we came down from, from 35%. And that's really one of the reasons why when people look at some of these things and make these claims, you got to take it with a grain of salt and look back at the history of things because you find out that like, wait a minute, this has been promised several times before and it's never come to fruition. So the question then comes down to, what makes you think that you're going to achieve whatever it is that you're thinking of achieving by doing this when it's never worked before? 
<laughs> and interrupting once again for our second CPE code word, and that code word is in, as in made in America. Again, the second CPE code word is in, as in made in America. And back to our conversation. Let's go back and unpack that first point you made, which was really this idea of if we're going to apply this global minimum tax, a bunch of different countries have to agree, right? But here's the thing, which countries will actually take the biggest hit from this plan? And those who potentially would take a hit based on this plan, well, you know, would they really agree or not? Probably not. But let's start with who's going to be impacted, you think? Well, actually, I think that there's going to be a lot of impacts. Mm -hmm. When you talk about who's going to be impacted the worst, in concept, because of the way a lot of these companies are structured that are, quote unquote, having nowhere income, technically, there are no losers on that because they're putting it in places where they're paying virtually no taxes anyway. So really, in terms of losing income to this global minimum tax, it's not going to happen. But the other side of the coin, who should stand to gain? It's everybody else that has seen traditional movers and shakers of their economy get exported out. And that's really what this comes down to. There are people that will win, and the only loser is going to be is the corporate bottom line in the sense that they're now going to be paying a tax that they were pretty much successful in avoiding. And that's really the question. It's not that there is going to be a redistribution of the tax that was paid. It's just going to be an increase of that tax and how it's going to be broken up among the people that are going to collect it. Do you think any particular industries might be more impacted or perhaps I, I know that we understand that generally I think pillar one and pillar two came out of industries that would be deemed under falling under the digital economy, right? And that's, that's created the challenge. But I mean, from the U.S. perspective, do you think this tax, the Made in America tax plan targets any particular industry or would have a more significant impact to certain industries? Well, I think the digital economy is probably going to take the biggest hit mm -hmm. because as a practical matter, you know, all you have to do is pick up the paper on any given day and you'll see somebody complaining somewhere about the Googles and the Apples and, you know, Amazon and everybody else. Right. right. Like that do. whole Amazon paid 0% effective tax rate. It was like, <laughs> I remember exactly. that article and thought, really? I don't think so, but okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. But that's the things that everybody's going to see the biggest hit on. What they don't see, and this is really where it's going to be kind of more interesting. There are a lot of financial companies that have set up in certain countries also that are also going to be taking a hit on this. Mm -hmm. some, you know, brick and mortar manufacturers that have taken advantage of a lot of these types of structures on there. And that's really because of the way that they utilize the different and existing tax law. Mm -hmm. you know, somebody was quipping the other day about election law. And what they said is that when we go to create all these new laws and incorporate that, the one law that we pass every time is the law of unintended consequences. Guess what? That applies to tax also because it's like anything else. Whenever you make a change and you don't have uniformity in how it's adopted by everybody that's interested in it, lo and behold, planning opportunities are born. Because planning only exists when you have differences in law. Right. One could argue as a tax professional that you're not doing your job if you're not actually looking for planning opportunities, at least from an internal stakeholder perspective, right? So. Oh, of course, because really that's how everything is structured today. People are not looking at it from the point of view 
of it's a civic duty to pay a tax. Rather than looking at it that this is a blood sport, that we are out here to sit there and defend our company against the barbarians at the gate that are the revenue authorities. And so from the internal corporate tax perspective, the idea is that, hey, we got to draw up the drawbridge. we got to make sure that we're manning the ramparts and, you know, raining all sorts of havoc on those guys to keep our defenses in place on this. What has been some of the global response to these initiatives that are laid out in the Made America plan? Well, that's interesting because a lot of people are looking at it and saying, well, as proposed legislation, we don't know what it's going to be, so I'm not going to get excited about it until right. it's a little bit more developed. But there have been some inklings that people are really pushing back on it. For example, one of the things with the U.S. plan is that, well, listen, we're willing to go along with this, but not for everybody. We want to define basically a universe of, say, 100 companies, the top performers and whatever. Mm-hmm. And everybody else in the world is looking at it saying, like, well, how do you define the top 100? Right. Revenue, profit, right. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. It sounds like it's going to give us certainty. What is it? And they don't know. And nobody really knows that. The other side of the coin with that also is that the question then comes down to, if I'm going to give up 100 of my guys, what do I get in return from you? And that's really the other side of the question. Everybody's willing to say, hey, listen, I'll take a slice of your 100 guys, but I don't right. want to give up a slice of my guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to find what that balance is. And when you think about the concept of having taxes as a civic duty, right? Because you mentioned this, but this is that's a really big point here that I heard the OECD make a lot, this concept of tax morality and, and being a good corporate taxpaying citizen. And, and so, you know, along the same vein, how do you think corporate tax behavior would potentially change if there was an overall minimum tax, right? Knowing that there's a behavioral aspect, right, to this concept of taxation versus an actual quantitative element to figuring out, you know, how do you maximize the value to your internal stakeholders and shareholders? Well, actually, I think the idea of being a responsible corporate citizen has changed over the decades. Mm -hmm. To be quite candid, I think the biggest issue today is that we've put such a premium on the concept of shareholder value that it kind of dwarfs everything else that's going on. 20 some odd years ago, when I was working with American Standard Companies, Mm-hmm. We had the German Minister of Finance over, and he was on a tour of some of the plants that we had. And one of the things that came out in discussions with them was that they looked at what a corporation's role was differently than how we view it in the States. From his perspective, a German corporation really did have an obligation to pay tax, but more important than even that obligation to pay tax was the obligation to provide good jobs for German trained citizens. Mm. And that kind of perspective really pervaded what they did. Earlier, I had worked with another company that was based out of Sweden. And because of the way their laws are set up and how they protect their workers, this multinational company always looked for where was the cheapest place to lay people off of because it was so darn expensive to do it in Sweden. And unfortunately, the U.S. came up as the top answer on that. Wow. Well, it's the, the way our laws are structured, the way our system is structured, that was their analysis. And it came down to the fact that, hey, it's dirt cheap to do it 
and get rid of somebody in the U.S., that's where we'll start on there. And that's really a difference in how governments view what their role are in regulating companies on there. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. So ultimately, I think that when we talk about the Made in America plan, low-tax jurisdictions like Ireland, Netherlands, Luxembourg, Bermuda, Cayman Islands, those are definitely jurisdictions that are going to be impacted because clearly they have very low tax revenues and it could have an impact to their attraction of foreign investment, right? Especially from American companies. If there's no benefit to setting up an operation in, in Bermuda or Cayman, well, I feel like there's a benefit regardless of the tax. It's a beautiful country. But anyways, <laughs> but but other countries, they will see the change as it potentially strips out some of the profit from their higher tax jurisdiction, perhaps when you think about profit attribution. But at the end of the day, the whole corporate tax landscape is going to be more regulated, right? It's going to be more transparent. And I think governments are in some ways ultimately doing this as a way to help their countries and people, you know, to your point. Yes? Oh, without a doubt. Every country is really looking at it to make sure that they can maintain what they have, that they can maintain their populace in a positive direction in terms of what they're doing, how they're treated, how well they're doing, how well they can enjoy a quality of life on that. Right. And honestly, that really is part of the role of government is to try and protect your people and to give them a reasonable life on that. The other part of the point, though, is that when you're doing this, it's really a question of how you have an ethos within everything that's going on and how companies are viewed and what their responsibilities are. And that's really always been a question in terms of what kind of economic system that you're running and how you're viewing everything. One of the things that's unique about a lot of the countries that you mentioned is that they do make fees from these corporations being there, but right. their fees are based kind of like on Delaware, where Delaware doesn't have a corporate income tax per se. They really rely on the franchise tax, and that's really measured by the amount of shares that are authorized. And really, that's all it comes down to. You're paying based on how many shares are authorized. And that's a unique kind of way of framing the issue on there. So whether you make or lose money, Delaware is going to collect something because you just have shares outstanding and issued and authorized. That's really how a lot of these other governments make their money on there. Ireland's kind of an exception because they have the 12.5% tax rate on there. Mm -hmm. But really, a lot of these things are really just part of the issue because what they also did is they also retracted businesses over there with an educated workforce that basically needs to be employed. 
So you're accomplishing two things by doing that. You're making sure you have good employment for your folks and you're collecting a reasonable amount of taxes that people aren't complaining about paying on that. Although as we've seen, some of the digital companies have gone even further and the 12.5% rate has even fallen victim to the treaty networks. Yes. But, you know, and paid 0%, let's be honest. Pretty right? much, so, yeah. <laughs> there, there was a little bit of a loophole there, so, but not, not the topic of this podcast necessarily. You know, I think your point is interesting, right? So these low tax jurisdictions, they potentially could be impacted by this whole global minimum tax framework negatively, or even, I mean, you know, on one side, it could be positive in that, okay, well, they have to increase their tax rate, perhaps. But on the other side, it's they've had to lower their tax rates to attract foreign investment. But you're also saying that they perhaps will look at other mechanisms to shore up these tax deficits, right, besides just investment per se, you know, transfer pricing. What about the transfer pricing rules? It, it, could that be a potential way now that they can shore up any of these deficits that they lost through these new tax regimes? Well, I think there's two different issues there. Mm -hmm. A lot of these countries that are currently benefiting from this, as long as the companies stay over there and stay domiciled there, it should not cause them a lot of grief on that. Right. Like I said, they're collecting fees, not taxes. Yes. Really, I think the bigger issue that could happen under the Biden plan are things that would prevent inversions. That is, where you take a U.S.-based company and make it under a foreign parent like that, so that it's no longer a U.S.-based company on that. Mm. And that's really the key inside the Biden plan, is to put the lid on inversions. The second issue, and this is really where transfer pricing comes into play more than anything else, is really going to be a question of how you're structuring companies and where they're going to lodge themselves. Because typically, you'll end up with a principal structure that's not necessarily in the Bermudas or the Caymans or, you know, right. like that but end up in like Switzerland or the Netherlands. Yeah. And there it's going to be interesting to see how that really plays out. One of the things about Switzerland that a lot of companies always found attractive is depending on the canton that you went to, you could strike some really nice deals mm-hmm. in terms of what you're going to pay for your tax. And it gave you tax certainty on a biannual basis. And that's one of the things that made it so attractive is that you knew that if you provided certain levels of activity there, if you had certain other pieces of the puzzle falling into place, that it would then really give you that predictable result. Right. But I think Switzerland's also getting a lot of pressure from other government agencies about their historical lack of transparency and favorable business dealings, if you want to call it that, right? So <laughs> That's a quite <laughs> way of putting it. I like that. Uh, yeah, they're getting a lot of grief on that. The point of fact... One of the big things about Switzerland was always the secrecy laws, which have really begun to crumble over the last decade or so. But that's the other issue, too, because that really now isn't looking at the true economic activity. Right. There you're looking at activity that, dare I say, borders on criminal, not actually criminal, where people are putting things where they believe, quote unquote, outside the reach of their home jurisdiction. A lot of people don't appreciate the fact that the U.S. tax system is based on global taxation. So that if you or I as individuals, if we go out to Germany and we earn something over there and we do some work over there, mm-hmm. we'll have a German tax bill due. Yeah. Why? Because it's a territorial tax. But that's the same token. 
that same income that we earned in Germany and subject to that territorial tax is also going to be subject to U.S. taxes. Now, there's a foreign tax credit mechanism in place that will mitigate the impact of that, so we're not paying double tax on it. But the concept is there. It is that it's global in nature on what the U.S. taxes. What some of those other activities that you were alluding to a moment ago, they were just kind of, well, gee, I forgot to put that on my return. Oops, it was only a million dollars. Oh, well. And that's the kind of thing that's criminal, to be quite candid. Yeah, well, it, it, it reminds me of, uh, I think it was Wesley Snipes being audited for tax evasion by putting all of his earnings in the Cayman. So that's where it gets a little bit aggressive. But do you think this concept of a global minimum tax is actually the best way to mitigate base erosion and profit shifting, right? BEPS. To be quite candid, I think that's a step in that direction. Do I think that it's going to be the best step in that direction? Probably not, because no matter what you do, and it still goes back to the one basic premise on there, it's really a question of how the laws in all the countries are structured and how they work out with each other. Now, to a certain extent, what that minimum will do, it's probably going to raise the ante on just playing the game in the first place, but it's probably not going to level it completely and take it off the field. And that's really the issue. Interrupting one third and final time for our last CPE code word. And that code word is America, as in made in America. Put all the code words together and you get made in America, the tax plan we're talking about on today's show. It's very easy to remember. But in case you don't remember, our third and final CPE code word is America, as in made in America. And back to our conversation. And do you think that M&Es are, are likely to see more tax scrutiny if this plan or fully adopted and ultimately that this is going to increase the level of scrutiny on M&Es? Well, I think M&Es are always going to be under a lot of scrutiny. Quite frankly, when you look at the efforts just in terms of what's happening with exchange of information, there's over 2,500 exchange of information agreements and transfer pricing already for the local reports. There's a thousand automatic CBCR exchange agreements in place. When you couple that with initiatives like Inspectors Without Borders across the EU, it's really tough to sit there and say that they're not gonna be examined because quite frankly, everybody's looking already. And so it's just a question of how intense that look is going to get. Right. Given the deficits that a lot of countries are encountering now because of COVID-19, that's going to be really intense going forward. I see the next three to five years as being a time when every company everywhere and every country everywhere is going to be looking at every rock they can turn over. Interesting. And, you know, if this Made in America tax plan were to, in fact, bring the businesses back home like its intention, right, and then there's a global minimum tax in place, do you think that's going to increase the scrutiny on transfer pricing related matters? I think so. I think that transfer pricing is going to get a lot of scrutiny no matter what, because ultimately it goes back to what we were talking about before. Where are we going to attribute money to? Are we going to look at a process where certain items are carved out and allocated based on certain criteria, and then there's a remainder that's going to get apportioned? Then that really is going to be the key issue on that. And those are key words to really focus in on. Because a lot of people describe allocation and apportionment as being synonyms. They're not. When you're describing something that's being allocated to a jurisdiction, 
it really is tied to that jurisdiction and subject to tax in that jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Whereas apportionment is just a way of saying, hey, listen, we're going to come up with a mathematical formula to come up with an approximation of what should be over here versus over there. And really the concept is kind of funny because it really isn't tied to one specific indicator, but rather could use a variety of indicators on there. And how you define them is really going to be how the whole formula works out and how people are going to exploit it for planning purposes. That's interesting. I never made that differentiation between allocation and apportionment, but I can I can appreciate your perspective on that, right? So what advice do you have for MNEs if the Made in America plan is passed? It depends on what the final form is going to be, but I would say that as a starting point, no matter what you're doing and where you're doing it, you're going to have to re-examine what your business rationale is for it. And I think that's probably the biggest issue that's going to be going forward on there. If you're claiming that you have an entity within any given jurisdiction, and it's going to be performing a very specialized function in there, is there going to be actual economic support so that if somebody looks at it objectively, say, yeah, I can see that activity going on over there, and that it's right to be over there because, and then you fill in the factual background on that. But if you end up in a situation where you got the old Delaware holding companies, where you see this, you know, post office box that measures all of like 12 inches by 12 inches by six inches. And oh yeah, there's a thousand corporations in there. <laughs> Question then comes down to really? <laughs> They're really tiny corporations? You know, what? <laughs> oh, you just need your name etched into the mailbox, right? <laughs> and it's really small type. Well, this has been great. I think, you know, ultimately what I'm hearing is that the Biden administration's made in America tax plan here. I mean, clearly is a demonstration of how the international tax arena is morphing. And there are lots of roadblocks that could hinder global transparency. And the idea of bringing over 200 countries to the table with a consensus thought is going to be difficult and challenging. So we know that Clearly, there's a long way to go before any of this reaches a consensus level. But obviously, transfer pricing is going to be impacted here because of the increased attention to profit shifting. The impact on potential tax rates and IRS scrutiny is is inevitable, right? Regardless of whether or not this this passes. But Mike D. Simone, I really do appreciate your thoughts. I appreciate your time here. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Mimi, quite welcome. And quite honestly, it's been a pleasure of mine to be talking with you about this because it's something that's near and dear to our hearts and something we're involved in every day. Yep. In fact, I think Biden's plan is going to get a new nickname. This is going to be the Economists and Lawyers Full Employment Act. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, 
Why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai rd. That's xbs.ai rd. Welcome back, everyone. It's now time for my favorite part of the show, a little segment we call What We Want to Know. We stick a transfer pricing expert in the hot seat, and they don't come with more expertise than Mr. Michael DeSimone here at Cross Border Solutions. And we ask them some a bit more personal questions. Sometimes it delves into tax, but it's a little bit more about getting to know them. But always question one, are you ready? Of course. I was born ready. Born ready. Question number two, how has the pandemic changed you for the better? I'd say that for the better, it's been a question of getting to know what it's like to just be with my family continuously. I've never really had it happen where all of us have been in the same place for an extended period of time like this. So it's been really pretty cool like that. Absolutely. Question number three, what do you miss most about being in the office? Quite frankly, I spent very little time in the office for the most part because I've always been working remotely for the last decade. That's so right. actually I was social distancing before social distancing was a thing. You were ahead and of the curve. <laughs> I was kind of ahead of the curve, exactly. And most of that is because I've worked with a lot of our folks in our European office. Mm. So it's never been really a priority of mine to try and get into the office because I always felt that I wasn't giving my all to the company and doing my best because I was wasting, well, two to three hours sitting in traffic, which... <laughs> Never fun. <laughs> we just came back to the offices, and I know I've been mentioning this on the last few episodes we've recorded. You have this my week. condolences. <laughs> I do. I do like the change of scenery. I do like seeing a few more people. Uh, after that, though, I could. I, it, I'll go right back to being like I don't need to spend an hour and a half a week being in a car, <laughs> like an hour and a half every day being in a car. But how have you seen transfer pricing evolve during the pandemic? Actually, the transfer pricing itself has always been evolving. Yeah. What I've seen picking up more during the pandemic, though, is that there's increased scrutiny in actually looking at activities, seeing what's actually occurring and where it's actually happening, and seeing the impact on what that is. One of the biggest changes, and this is whether it's you know inside the U.S. or globally, is that people are finding out a lot of activity is, can occur irrespective of where the person is sitting. And that's giving rise to some interesting issues because that goes back to what we were talking about initially. What are the anchors for that activity? What's creating nexus? And if people can really do a certain amount of activity, regardless of where they're sitting, how is that then a valid indicator of where that activity is really occurring? Is it occurring based on where their office was or where their home is? And how do you define that? How do you actually split that? And that's going to be one of the challenges. A lot of states are facing that just as well as a lot of international jurisdictions because of the way things are organized. Most of Europe is on a territorial base, not on a global base for taxing. So if the person who is working across a border all of a sudden isn't crossing that border to do that work, who's got the right to tax them as an individual? And really, how does that now play into the transfer pricing? Because what's going to be used in terms of describing where that activity is occurring. Is that now creating a link like a permanent establishment in that second jurisdiction? Are we going to have to worry about then preparing transfer pricing documentation for those support services, say, 
that are occurring like that. And that's going to be a question that right now, it's too early to tell or too late to care as to what the answer is going to be because we just don't know it. Right, right. So much still up in the air at this point. And for our final question, what is something you consider overrated and what is something you consider underrated? Overrated, I think, is the value of trying to ascribe to an office, a physical location, some kind of magic that makes things happen better just because it's an office. Underrated, I think, is the idea that rather than the physical location, the interaction of people, how you build your teamwork and how that's developed. And sometimes that can occur better in an office. Other times it can occur quite casually and readily in a dispersed environment where people are working from a variety of locations on there. I think that one thing that gets kind of mixed up with the two of them is the fact that when you can get a diversity of opinions readily, regardless of whether it's on a physical location or the ether location of the internet, that that's really where the value lies in any organization and how well you can tap into that, how well you can really become truly multinational in spirit as opposed to defining it by physical locations. We got to have you back, Mike. This this was fantastic. And I love how from the, you know, breadth of your expertise, and I've, I've you know, heard you countless times in, in, in a sales atmosphere, but like the way that you use your knowledge to just be like, it's not that simple that this kind of ideological totem makes us all say, you know, this maxim. It's, it's just not that simple. It, that also doesn't mean the opposite is unequivocally true. And I just think that perspective is just so illuminating. We want to thank Michael DeSimone for being on today's show and being an absolutely incredible guest. We want to thank everyone at home for tuning into today's podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe to the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And there you will find Cross Border Solutions' entire suite of tax podcasts. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. As you can tell from the echo, we're back in our Terrytown offices. So it looks like we've got this whole COVID thing near kicked, but stay safe, everyone. Wear a mask, get vaccinated, and we'll see each other very soon. Until next week. <laughs>